This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I am Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm stepping in for Daryl this week. As we found out, the health risks are posed by environment, and this can change overnight. Yes, I'm going to talk about the Wuhan novel coronavirus that has taken over the news. Facts. December 12, 2019, first case has been linked to the Hunan seafood market of Wuhan city in China. January first week, China reports to WHO that a total of 59 cases of pneumonia of unknown etiology have been identified in Wuhan. January second week, a diagnostic test was developed for coronavirus and China confirmed that there were now 41 cases and one death. 11 January, China shared the genetic sequence of the novel coronavirus, enabling a rapid development of the diagnostic test. We are now in the fourth week of January. There are 8,100 confirmed cases, the death tolls of 171. There's been a global spread in 18 countries and 100 confirmed cases outside China, including six in US. And for the first time, 60 million people in Wuhan and the neighboring cities have been placed on lockdown mode. Today, we are joined by a very interesting person, Colin Bucks. Dr. Bucks is a Mayo Clinic emergency medicine physician. He was a prior director of a clinic in Stanford University. An amazing career. He started as a middle school teacher, became a firefighter, and he became an emergency room physician. He became a director of emergency practices in Stanford. He's the first responder in Haiti, Philippines, you name it, Liberia, Ecuador, and he built a team called Sampler, and he worked in the fields. So I call him like a fireman. When the fire is there, we are running away, he's there. Welcome, Dr. Colin Bucks. It's a pleasure, thank you. Dr. Bucks, you've been in the field, and you've seen this environment play over and over again in the different places that you've been. From your extensive experience, what is happening in the home country during one of these epidemics? Each time I've responded to the field, I've been enormously impressed with the degree of human resilience in the face of adversity um, in large outbreaks or following uh, humanitarian disasters. Also, the sense of community and the pulling together has been really profound in ways that stimulate me to do more and more of that work. Um, you also recognize just the degree of psychological impact that it has. The role of fear um, following a disaster is massive, and also the importance of health education during those times. And almost all of these episodes are different. I mean, the suffering is similar, how it plays out is similar, but do you think the way we are reacting to it in, in these days of uh, social media and instant news coming up, the way the fear, the risk understanding, is it, is it variable with these epidemics or, or we react as human beings similarly? I think it's similar, but the access to information accelerates the response time. And in some ways that can be fantastic. The dissemination of the science of this outbreak has been so much faster. It actually puts pressure on policymakers to be ready to respond and ready to react um, to say, oh, if we can think that what would normally occurred in three months is now happening in the second week. How do we need to prepare for those kind of events? 
And we have heard about the other coronavirus. In fact, you and I probably have suffered from coronavirus, some kind of an upper respiratory tract infection in our life. But the two big ones which are being thrown into the mix with the Wuhan coronavirus is the SARS epidemic and the MERS epidemic. How do you think the current episode of Wuhan uh, or the novel coronavirus episode differs from these two previous epidemics? Yeah. Um, the, the similarities with SARS are important, but there's a key difference. And that's this is overall appears to be a milder illness than SARS. And the mortality rates with both SARS and MERS were much greater. I think potentially the mortality rate of approximately 2% now, if anything, might be a potential overcounting because you're going to catch all the deaths. But when much of the illness for most people is a mild flu-like illness, um, there's probably cases that have not been tested and that our total counts are probably somewhat low. So that percentage of that mortality rate is, I think, real, but if anything, a potential overestimate at this time. And so in SARS, you had approximately 10% mortality. In MERS, 35% mortality. Mm -hmm. um, and we're almost at the same number of cases now for this novel coronavirus as we had in total for the, um, the global SARS epidemic. Okay. So we'll be going into some detail as to what is so unique about the Wuhan coronavirus, but you work in the emergency department, that's your area. What, what do you ask? Uh, and this is the flu season going on, which is a much bigger risk in US and all over the world, and you throw into the mix somebody with, uh, who might actually be happening, having uh, this coronavirus, what do you ask them? What kind of questions are you going to ask them? Yeah, this, the, the basic screening questions, and I think it's important to do in any kind of infectious disease, have you traveled? What are your contacts? What is your living environment? Which means who else could potentially have you been in contact with? Um, and in this case, all of our U.S. cases, and actually globally, they're able to, um, to trace back to another person who has been in Wuhan. And so that's, um, that would be the key to identification. And if I can add to this, just what you're saying, this is flu season. Some doctors in, in Wuhan need to get a huge doctor because they discerned out that this pneumonia was different mm -hmm. in the setting of when you just expect seasonal pneumonias to be at their peak. And somehow they identified this outbreak so quickly. It's really impressive. It's, it's really amazing. It's, it's supposed to be some kind of a record time that, that they were able to sequence the genetic material, uh, which really helps us in the rapid development of the diagnostic test. Um, but you were mentioning, you and I were talking, uh, you're talking about the seafood market yeah. uh, and, and the uniqueness of the location and why it could be a potentially big problem in China. Uh, can you can you tell me more about what what we the kind of discussion we had? You always look at the the human factors that are contributing to the spread of disease. And this market, where there was seafood and wild animals, and likely um, we'll we'll trace the etiology of this. I think we're fairly close to knowing that already, um, the pathway. Um, but this is a huge market. It's in a massive city, eleven million people roughly, and that market is right next to. A gigantic train station and they've got tons of global trade in and out of Wuhan so the potential for this to spread rapidly you've kind of got two races the race uh, as the 
disease spreads, but this incredibly fast race that's going on with defining the genomics, finding out novel treatment possibilities, potentially developing a vaccine. It's, they run in parallel tracks, and I think the science is starting to catch, how fast, catch up to how fast we can spread illness. Yeah, and I, and I was I was reading about this incubation period, which could be anything from two days to fourteen days, and during the period of two days to fourteen days, you could not manifest with any symptoms, yeah. and you could be spreading the disease. Yeah, and you throw into that this kind of movement, which is which has happened there probably for several weeks, and right now they've shut down everything, and I would like to imagine a situation where you have a population of 60 million, they're all locked in. Yeah. Nothing going in, nothing going out, except food is there. I've seen some of the pictures of all the side roads being blocked up so that nobody can enter those small, tiny villages and locations. They are scared. And as the Chinese New Year coming up, or actually Chinese New Year is going on, everybody's on a vacation. A huge number of people are supposed to move around, which they can't. And their biggest problem is that they cannot have masks, they cannot make masks, they cannot make uh, the, the dresses and the suits which we wear here for contact precautions. And that is interfering with some of the care that is being given. So if somebody were to come here and were to tell you that, yes, they have been exposed to somebody from Wuhan, what kind of precautions do uh, our providers take in the outpatient setting or the emergency room setting? Yeah, so we've identified this in, in the male classification as a high-consequence infectious disease category two, and we're taking contact in some modified respiratory precautions. So if there's somebody that we would screen positive um, for s symptoms and travel or potential contact, then they would go into a respiratory isolation room, be masked, and providers would be initiating all care um, also masked. Uh, initially with N95s um, because it wouldn't be the only infection that we'd be concerned about. Um, and if they needed to be admitted, then also we have designated uh, is isolation rooms. Um, and this should be this, a similar process, and it's a, it's a great opportunity um, for other healthcare facilities around the country to be revisiting their high-consequence infectious disease protocols that they worked on so hard during the Ebola outbreak and saying, okay, what's our method of transmission, how do we do this, is there any retraining that we need to do, how is our supplies levels of personal protective equipment. And so it's not really masks, but the providers also have to wear gowns and gloves because of secretions, is that what you would advise out here? Um, I think that's a, a, an extra precaution, I th um, and it helps, helps us not to carry Mm -hmm. droplets, but really this is a modified droplet with some respiratory precautions, so not so much the contact precautions. Sure. I don't want to venture down too far um, into the specifics because we've got very well-defined algorithms, and as soon as you click on that button, you pull this lever, then a whole series of sure. um, responses come into play. So the good thing is uh, that in U.S., almost every hospital is now activating their, their infectious disease protocols to manage the coronavirus outbreak, if any. Unfortunately, we have just, I checked, uh, only six cases till now. There were five, and they think they've got the first patient-to-patient uh, -patient, uh, contact uh, developing a sixth case. Yep. Uh, so that is possible. 
we are sitting at an advantage because of the distance we are, but modern travel brings can bring patients uh, rapidly. Uh, they don't need to come from China. They might have visited China. They might have gone to Hong Kong and taken a flight to U.S. So I, I completely agree with you about the kind of questions uh, to ask. But could you talk about how this process started in the Wuhan market? It was a very interesting concept. I th I, the working hypothesis right now, and I think we'll get this fur further confirmed, is that the, this novel coronavirus reservoir was a bat, similar to with SARS. And with SARS, it went from bats, they think, to civet cats, which is an exotic meat that was sold in markets in China. With this novel coronavirus, they think it went from bats to snakes. Snakes eat bats. Um, and then the snakes are sold in the market, and people are in close proximity. They're handling these snakes, potentially slaughtering the snakes and eating the snakes. Um, and if that is definitively determined to be the, the course, this animal-to-animal um, -animal reservoir with some change in the virus that allows it to be transmitted to another animal and then further adaptation that's allowed it to go to human-to-human -human transmission is when, what's... Um, what we think is the current course. Okay. Would you feel, um, would you let us know from, there are a lot of terms being thrown up, like what is an epidemic, what is an outbreak, what is endemic, what is pandemic, and a lot of these things are loosely spoken up sometimes. And um, what are these? What are, what's an endemic, what's an outbreak? And sure. what's an epidemic? Sure, I think that's a really good place to start. And if you don't mind, I'll use an analogy. Um, First, we'll start with the term endemic, the baseline level of any disease um, that a population generally holds. And so if we take a cruise ship, the infirmary, the sick bay in a cruise ship is probably used to a predictable number of seasickness cases on every cruise, and they would know how to handle that. Okay. And now we get a new respiratory case and it starts to spread throughout this cruise ship. But it's a contained population, small region. That we would consider we've got a respiratory illness outbreak. Similarly, if it was just one town or one county. Now, that cruise ship pulls into a port. Panama City, they go through the canal. They stop. People get on and off, and they spread this respiratory illness to, city of, to Panama City, and it starts to spread throughout Central America, South America, up the coast in the U.S. Now we're starting to cover a much larger region. If we think about it as a country, generally they say an epidemic, but once we start to cover multiple countries mm -hmm. or continents, then we say pandemic. So I think of each of these terms, outbreak, epidemic, and pandemic as scales. So a pandemic, it has to be in several countries uh, and in a larger scale. Right now, this is not in that there's no discussion of that. They're just isolated cases. It's interesting, given the incubation period of 2 to 14 days, there's this case where this huge uh, cruise ship, which has about right. six or 7,000 people, and there were two people who are ill. They were from Hong Kong. So they have quarantined this whole ship. Right. And they think that it's going to be there for 14 days or something. Um, nothing to do. You sit there and you eat there, eat the food and do nothing else but wait for this quarantine period to be over. But do you think these things help? 
I do. I think it can be enormously frustrating for those individuals, but for the potential of spread, I, I would gulp to be the person who has to make this decision, but I understand the implications if they said, what are, what are our other options? Um, and this is, if I can, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes comes from the Ontario provision, Provincial Report called the Spring of Fear from SARS. The day, that, on the very same day that the case uh, um, flew from Hong Kong to Toronto, an elderly woman who passed away from SARS, she infected her son. The son goes to the hospital in Toronto, has a respiratory illness of some severity, stays in the emergency department for many hours, and then goes and um, the subsequent outbreak comes from him. The town of Toronto gets, the city of Toronto gets largely quarantined, and it's a huge outbreak. Um, that very same day that the patient flew from Hong Kong to Toronto, two patients flew from Hong Kong to Vancouver. And the wife is very ill, but she self-isolates, and she convalesces and gets better. Her husband is ill and goes to Vancouver General, where they recognize that he's got some respiratory illness that's intense. Um, he goes to the ICU. He recovers. And you've never heard about SARS Vancouver, likely, mm -hmm. because there was no further cases. They had aggressive infection control procedures in place, and he didn't spread it to anybody. So you have SARS Vancouver in direct contrast to SARS Toronto and the implications of what one or two cases can can sure. do. And so it's probably an abundance of caution mm -hmm. and probably a great disruption to their lives. There's potentially worse places to be quarantined than a cruise ship, um, but um, they will recount this as a major chapter in their lives, all 6,000 of them. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dr. Buck. I think this lesson that we have learned from SARS and MERS of containment and not just moving around is helpful. So I was reading the CDC guidelines, and they're saying if you're sick, uh, uh, you've got to make sure you don't spread the respiratory illness to others. You should stay home when you're sick. You shouldn't feel, oh, my work needs me, and I need to go. The world is going to collapse. No, the world will collapse if you go to work. Stay home. Uh, cover your cover your uh, your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw away the tissue in the trash, or just exactly like you should, uh, cough in your elbow, and then clean and disinfect, uh, disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces. So this is kind of important. But having seen the SARS epidemic and MERS epidemic in the Middle East, respiratory syndrome epidemic in spite of the fact that the incubation period is anything from two days to four days, because everybody is at a different day of the incubation period, this whole thing draws out. The SARS almost stayed for about two years, MERS almost was two years. So we are right now in 2020. I wonder whether we have learned any lessons from the previous two epidemics so that we say, well, the story shouldn't go until 2022. Do you have any thought about that? I hope so. I, I think these lessons, I, I'm seeing lessons that were learned in SARS, um, lessons in global health response that were really um, reinforced during the Ebola outbreak being implemented. The degree of communication, the degree of cooperation amongst nations, and the early um, initiation of screening and restrictions um, it's happening so much faster. So I think so. I don't think that there can be, there be 
I don't think you can have too much health education to the general population. It was one of the key factors that helped control the Ebola outbreak, public health education, and just the carpet bombing of information through whatever mode of media is going to have the most effect on a population. Um, so I see some of this occurring now. I see it happening much more rapidly. So I don't want to say I'm an optimist. I think I'm I'd be pragmatic. This is a this has the potential to be a large outbreak, but I see it. I see the world responding. And looks like because it's a milder disease. I mean, it's already exceeded SARS. The number of patients mm-hmm. who have the Wuhan coronavirus exceeding seven thousand already exceeded the SARS. But it's milder. The mortality rate must be lower. It's usually the individuals who have some comorbid illness. They're sick due to some reason, respiratory or heart failure or something. That's where it's higher. Um, But here's a key question. I am looking at the WHO report. I am looking at the CDC report. And I'm just doing, I'm far away from where the action is happening. You have been there in these places. Talk about the role of the logistics. Talk about the role of supply chain. Talk about the role of availability of facilities and inavailability of it the human suffering which is going on there, uh, the families being put through an environment where nothing has prepared them ever for this. What did you see and what kind of messages can you give for us who have never been in, in the, who have never experienced what you've been through? Um, with Ebola, supply chain issues were um, critical. Um, having a consistent supply of personal protective equipment um, disinfecting materials, and there, you do somewhat live in fear of saying, "What if? What if we ran out of masks and gloves? Um, how would we continue to treat? Would we have to stop treatment? Heaven forbid. Um, we didn't. We didn't face this. Um, we didn't get to that point. Um, but you did realize how fragile um, the the route to care was and that basic disruptions could disrupt the whole uh, response. The I talked about the importance of public health information, but it was also you would, you would see rumors spread just as quickly um, and, and misinformation, and that can be really dangerous uh, and spark tremendous fear. And there were times in um, in West Africa, where caregivers were attacked and, and killed because they, it was rumors went around that they weren't benevolent, that they weren't acting um, in the um, for the good of the population, and um, I can I, I have a tremendous respect for that fear. Um, I'm a bit sympathetic for it, but you have to com- combat it, um, and I think that fear can be valuable too to say we're at a time when it's just fine to be peer- fearful if it provokes you to vigilance and discipline with hand hygiene and following the instructions you're disciplined because you're afraid that keeps you sharp but um, panic is dangerous I don't mind fear panic is dangerous Dr. Buck I, I really um, understand what you said because I was reading the report and in China too Panic has set place in a couple of places. This is kind of a message what happens in epidemics. There are patients who have attacked their doctors, not patients in particular, their relatives. 
Um, they panic as when they see what's going on, and these hospitals are overwhelmed with patients. And the way they do is they've been tearing out the gowns of these doctors, which they're using for contact precaution, putting these caregivers into lives and health into jeopardy. So I can see that these kind of panic can happen. Fortunately, in the U.S., there are so few cases, but it's kind of reaching out. It's a global world. It's reaching out to understanding what China might need from help from everybody. And every hospital is, I think, big countries are stepping in, and U.S. is also going to be helping out. But the fantastic thing which has happened, which I don't think in SARS and MERS, and I may be wrong, is the ability to identify the genetics of the virus. Uh, so rapidly, and then sharing it. There are articles in New England Journal and Lancet which have been published sharing the material. How do you think that would really be a stepping stone in fighting some of these infections? I understand it's going to take a long time to develop a vaccine. It's very expensive. Uh, just getting in a lab is not enough. Getting a vaccine in a lab, you have to do human trials. So it takes a year or two. Uh, and maybe the coronavirus might die off by then. Who knows, hopefully. But this is a very interesting phenomenon which we are seeing in infectious disease. Yeah. Can you comment on that? Um, having the genomics um, brought, to the, um, brought to the public in the middle of January, when we think the announcement, the official announcement was December 31st, and by the middle of January, we'd published the genome, is phenomenal. And that, that allowed... Um, scientists to start testing antivirals against it and start identifying other antiviral medications that could potentially target this coronavirus. There's already vaccine development, and they're pulling off the shelf a, uh, a vaccine Texas Children's Hospital had for SARS since 2016. It hasn't gone through its human trials, but they said once attention died off from SARS, there was uh, no uh, no pressure and no financial backing to get this through its trials, but we already had this um, uh, vaccine that had a high likelihood of success, and so now there's attention on this. Yes, this virus could die off before, um, but before human trials are completed, um, and for as an example of that, um, in 2015, I held in my hand. Uh, vial of uh, the experimental vaccine for Ebola. I didn't wow. get it in my body. Um, it was used. Um, uh, that vaccine was used in trials, and by 2017, over 200,000 people were vaccinated in DRC on an experimental basis. But now that vaccine in 2019, just in December, reached FDA approval. So those are the timelines. We can now develop a vaccine much faster, and those uh, and there are multiple labs are working on uh, formulating vaccines for this uh, this novel coronavirus. Pardon me, uh, but the testing process, mm -hmm. just as you said, is often years in the making. And and just just to make clear that right now the treatment is symptomatic. There are no antivirals. There are no no vaccines. Um, it's more of common sense, um, taking care, asking the right questions. Uh, in U.S. in particular, asking the question, more important question, which I heard was, have you visited Wuhan? Have you been in China? Have you had, had you, have you come in contact with somebody who has been in Wuhan? 
those kind of questions are much more important when somebody comes with upper respiratory tract infection in the upper res in uh, the your emergency department or outpatient and remember for everybody we have forgotten flu right i, right? I, I wanted you, to emphasize this too can you talk about that i mean uh, our our old friend influenza uh, affected and i was looking at the numbers from 2017 2018 44 million people uh, 808,000 were hospitalized and there were 61,000 deaths. Right. So influenza cannot be forgotten. So what is your recommendation if somebody is coughing and hacking and does not have coronavirus? What are you going to tell them about, hey, did you get the flu shot? <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's been some of my favorite um, public, uh, popular press headlines that have said, scared about coronavirus? Question mark. Get your flu shot. It's not too late to get your flu shot. I don't want to say familiarity uh, breeds contempt, but we're somewhat lackadaisical about this very serious, deadly illness called influenza that we see every year um, and that can be devastating for young, young patients, elderly patients. Um, and, the, and it's right now, you know, if, if, uh, people are getting far more ill from influenza, same kind of precautions, hand washing, cough etiquette, disinfecting of surfaces. Mm -hmm. But the difference is we have a vaccine, a good vaccine. Um, and uh, another thing, I just want to plug this in uh, Lancet Infectious Diseases, just um, the last edition, um, uh, phase one trials begun for a universal a flu vaccine, and that's very encouraging to me. I want to see, I want to oh. track where that goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, influenza, influenza, influenza. Um, get your flu shot. So in uh, U.S., if there are hundred cases, we are talking the top ninety-nine cases with upper respiratory would be some form of either flu or some adenovirus or the common virus. Yeah, and it'll be very very unlikely to be Wuhan. We have a population of. 300 million in the U.S., and we yeah. have five cases, right? Yeah. And there are a lot more cases of flu, so that cannot be forgotten. The big, 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 yeah. big friend flu is always there. Yeah. Uh, and and if and 98% of the coronavirus cases will be mild. Mm -hmm. You know, we will have full recovery from, you know, that's, that's some encouraging numbers. So the some of the public health announcements to hospitals is we have to be very alert. Um, Correct. We are traveling everywhere. Everybody's traveling. We know when it comes. So we have to be alert. We have to have the labs prepared for diagnosis. But what are the recommendations now? Um, you don't send the sample yourself. Even when the patient comes to the ER or the outpatient, I'm told that I have to make a phone call to my local infection prevention and control team, as well as the public health lab, and they will they understand the way of taking the taking the sample and sending it to CDC. Is that what the Correct. recommendations yeah. are? Yeah. So, um, uh, bronchial lymphatic specimens or nasal pharyngeal specimens swabs, um, we we collect those, but then we coordinate with our inpatient infection control and contact Minnesota Department of Public Health um, to coordinate the transport of those specimens. I was reading that when you have a patient, you keep them in a room, give them a mask, close the door, and after they leave, one way or the other, whatever we diagnose them, 
keep the door locked for an hour while we go and clean the room by standard process. Correct. And those these are some of the precautions which are probably going to go farther than anything because we don't have antivirals, we don't have vaccines. Yeah. Some of these uh, very strict precautions. I think uh, we got to be disciplined, as you said. Yeah. Uh, we got to be organized, um, and we got to be looking out both within and outside for any kind of threat this virus might might pose to us. Because apart from the human suffering, which is huge, I also see in the modern world that these kind of migration of viruses from one place to another is causing huge economic impact. Mm -hmm and which is going to affect all of us or major countries and all any of the countries. And could you plug in, because you have been in Western Africa, you've been in Africa, how much more disastrous this virus could be it, if it goes into a country which does not have the resources that U.S. has. So I'm told that the smaller countries have said, have shut down their boundaries, they're saying no more, no flight from China or anywhere else because they're, they're so scared that if the virus goes in, they don't have all these contact precaution material and input. Uh, it's going to be disastrous from them, much more than it could be in the, for a developed country. I got to participate um, this past year in a pandemic war games um, that was sponsored by the U.S. Naval War College. I was very interested in the civilian military cooperation during uh, humanitarian events. And they they modeled it in a fictional city, but with characteristics that would be very consistent with many places around the world where you say uh, large income discrepancies, large discrepancies in access to care and sanitation, and very, very high densities, also with the potential for movement across borders and um, in and out of this, in and out of a city, and in in and out of countries, uh, and the staggering thing about that was, they had to back down all the characteristics of the illness so much um, that when their disease modelers, their PhD disease modelers, epidemiologists, that when they ran the, they kept creating scenarios, and they and when there was large health disparities and economic disparities and any degree of um, political discord, uh, when they ran the disease models, poof, the disease just exploded. And so when they announced the disease characteristics in the course of the, of the gaming of this, I was just like, why so easy? Because you gave us something treatable. And then I talked to the designers of the outbreak off to the side, and they were just like, yeah, because anything else just would go too out of control. We, we had to give you something that you could potentially win at. Um, and so I understand why countries with other with less resources and more mm -hmm. fragile health um, um, baseline mm -hmm. um, would say, whoa, 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 we got to batten down the hatches. Um, mm -hmm. Every place is different. They're going to face different political realities. Um, uh, epidemics, pandemics have huge economic um, consequences in, in addition to the human toll. And, you know, at this point, though, we're much further ahead in recognition and response in the response phase of this than we have been in other outbreaks. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I've heard that apart from just providing the medical help to these countries, uh, what organizations and larger countries, like which an effort like U.S. are doing is 
have to put, provide economic stability because it really, these things really cause both political and economic stability. This what happened, I mean, thousands of years ago when you have plague, I don't know when was the last plague outcome, uh, outbreak, uh, the black fever and plague. These change governments. I mean, yeah. fortunately, we understand the system. As you said, we have learned from SARS, MERS. Uh, there is a phenomenal speed at developing things, mm -hmm. phenomenal response. But understanding what is happening in reality, there are workers in Wuhan who have come because it's a big, it's 11 million population place, a lot of buildings coming up. They're migrant workers. They have no jobs now. Everything shut down. One worker was telling to the other workers, all he's eating is noodles for the last so many right. uh, days. And he's saving his money. So in case he doesn't have a job, he's got something to back on. Yeah. And that amount of money is not enough. So there are other economic aspects which are beyond the scope of our uh, discussion, but something to keep in mind. Yeah. But stubbing it, uh, snubbing this virus is going to be the goal of, I think, all the countries yeah. and uh, people who understand with great science and technology, as they say, with when you have a lot, you got to give a lot. Yeah. So that's where probably our role is to, to find out how we can be of help. Uh, I think we are coming uh, to the end of our uh, talk and really, uh, Dr. Box, with your experience, I got to know a lot more than I would have imagined the pandemic and, and the gaming and understanding. I think it's modeling is very important to understand what can happen. But basic things, basics, uh, those are much higher level. I think from where I come, a couple of things, the symptoms are similar. Fever, cough, shortness of breath. Some patients will have pneumonia, so they'll come to, with pneumonia. The question is, as a health provider, how can you protect yourself or as a family member, your family member, how can they protect themselves? It's the thing that respiratory etiquette that we talk about, avoid close contact with patients who are sick, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth with unwashed hands. More important, wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds uh, or use an alcohol-based hand sanitizers that contains at least 60% alcohol if soap and water is not available. And if you're sick, as we mentioned, stay home. When you're sick, cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue, throw the tissue in the trash and clean the disinfectant dis and clean and disinfect frequently touched objects. There is no vaccine. There is no um, antivirals for this, but there is, fortunately this, for most, it's going to be a milder mm -hmm. illness. With that, um, we have been talking about the Wuhan novel 2019 virus, coronavirus with Dr. Colin Bucks. Thank you for your time, Colin. As Daryl says, if you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talk podcast, please subscribe. Thank you so much. Thank you.